listening to Divorce Happy Hour with your hosts, Christina Previtt and John Nocklinger. We're two divorce lawyers from New Jersey here to talk about love, life, and divorce. Whether you're thinking about divorce, going through one now, or been there, done that, or if you're just a divorce voyeur, this show is for you. To learn more about us and our law firm, you can find us at centraljerseyfamilylaw.com. You can also find us on social media. Just search for NJ Divorce Solutions on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Let us know if you like the show or hate the show and what topics you'd like us to cover in the future. Please keep in mind that this show is for informational purposes only. It's not intended to take the place of legal advice. If you need legal advice, please call New Jersey Divorce Solutions at 732-384-1550 and mention this program for a free consultation. Our topic of the day is how to be a smart client. And we got top our top 10 sort of points of advice on how to be a smart client. That's right. And I'm, I'm going to just put it out there that I, I kind of came up with this idea because I was uh, getting my hair did and my uh, hairdresser was just commenting on how she gets a lot of people in her chair who just are going through a divorce. And she said they complain about their divorce lawyer. And I was naturally quite shocked. I couldn't believe it. And you don't think anyone complains about you? I'm sure that that never happens. <laughs> but if they were going to complain about me, um, so we're going to talk about some of the things on this list. And I'm going to give you some suggestions, basically how you can like your divorce lawyer a little better. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's a little selfish. Um, but some of these things that um, she was talking about is that I, I think really arises out of perhaps not having, you know, realistic expectations about what it is that your lawyer's there to do for you. So uh, we're going to give you some ideas about how you can help yourself and be a little bit more wisely involved in your case. And more importantly, I think where a lot of people's dissatisfaction comes from is the amount of money that it costs to do, you know, get a divorce. And it, it certainly does cost a lot of money. So some of these things that we're going to suggest to you you can do yourself and will save you potentially thousands of dollars. So the first thing on the list is gather your own documents. A divorce often is very document intensive. So what do we mean by that? You have a right to get what we refer to as discovery. And that means that you have a right to get documents regarding your case. So tax returns, bank statements, credit card statements. If you need uh, a copy of your deed or mortgage records, um, pay stubs, uh, any retirement accounts that you or your spouse have, um, you're entitled to those documents. If there's any, if there were any personal loans that were taken out or any loans that were given during the marriage that are going to come up in the divorce conversation, have all of that. Don't wait until you've been litigating for six months and argue over who's going to gather those things. Yeah. Go, you, go right into your home office and see what's in there. Try to gather up all those documents. Yeah. Don't sit and wait for your spouse to maybe never provide them maybe provide them six months later. Go ahead and get everything you possibly can. Get it to your attorney. Don't wait. That'll save you so much time and money in the long run. That's right. And if you gather that yourself, you will save a lot of money because every time you have to have your attorney do it for you, you're going to see that as an item entry on the next invoice that you get. You don't work for free, Christina? No. Oh, I'm shocked. So that leads us to our next um, 
bit of advice, which is to do your case information statement in advance and be realistic. And what is a case information statement, John? I, I would answer that, but I'd have to say shampoo. It's our safe word whenever we start to get too technical around here. Basically, it's the worst document that most people fill out in a divorce because it's many, many pages, and it requires you to analyze your entire budget for the year and come up with monthly figures on everything from how much you eat out to how much you spend on haircuts to how much you spend on clothes, how much you spend at the gym, everything. So it takes a long time to put it together. But the problem is, is that most people aren't quite realistic when they're putting it together. And that's the number one thing that you see judges yell at litigants about is how can you have a budget that's $20,000 a month when you and your spouse together only make $80,000 a year? Just be realistic. Give some real figures, but you know, not everyone has to sit with a calculator and their credit card and bank statements and calculate to the penny exactly how much per month. But That's be realistic right. and don't wait for your attorney to take a look at it and and see the fact that you overstated your budget by three times your income. And now you got to pay your attorney to go through each item and talk to you about each That's item. That's right. And you know what? I can't even tell you how many times I get a case information statement and a case from the other party. And it doesn't look like their attorney even looked at it. It looks like they just gave it to their client and said, here, fill this out. And never looked at it. So I think the case information statement is a document that the attorney and the client should really be working on together. But if you want to save some money, go through your bank records, go through your credit card statements, whatever you might need to look at to make sure that your budget is as close to accurate as possible. Don't have your attorney do that. Don't have your attorney spend hours looking at bank records because you are going to see that on your bill. So use your attorney wisely. Use your attorney for the things that you really need help with and you know, not just to, to do more routine sorts of things because maybe you don't want to do it. Absolutely. Okay, so number three, how to be a smarter client. Use the other people in your attorney's office. So what we mean by that is ask questions of the secretaries to the extent that they can help you. You know, don't call your attorney and insist that you have to speak to your attorney to find out when your next court date is. Ask the secretary that question. If there's an experienced secretary in the office, they are a wealth of information. They can tell you what the ESP process is or what's going to happen at the case management conference that I have to go to next week. They really can be very helpful to you. And, you know, sometimes if it's a really good secretary, be very compassionate to the experience that you're having. And, um, you know, maybe you can burden them a little bit with uh, some of those more emotional things rather than your attorney who's going to be charging you, you know, two, three or $400 an hour to have to talk about those things. The, the um, metaphor that I always give when I'm explaining this to my own clients is don't, you know, when you go to the doctor, you don't need the doctor to take your blood pressure. The nurse can do that. And I think it's um, similar to what's going on in a law office. There are certain things that an associate can do very easily and at much less cost to you than you really don't need the attorney to do it. Yeah, you should reserve, in our office, for example, most people should reserve 
time for me and Christina for the big events, going to court, negotiating your settlement. When it comes to generating uh, routine documents in a case, don't be afraid to use an associate, even though you may have come for a partner. Maybe you came for the person whose name's on the door. Don't be afraid to use the per another attorney that they've brought in because they trust that attorney, the, the partner trusts that attorney to do work. You should too. Um, you have to assume that the partner is always supervising what's going on. Same thing with the secretaries. I got to tell you, I specifically encourage clients to speak with our secretaries. Speak with them because they know what's going on. We make sure they know what's going on. And there's a reason for that. You really don't want to pay hundreds of dollars an hour to ask the question, as Christina just said, when's my next court date? You really want to save that time for discussing how to resolve your case, which, leads, right. which, leads, us to, which leads us to knowing what you want. Number four. Number four. List. Number four. Knowing what you want. So how do they do that? I mean, how often do you get someone who comes into your office and they can sit there and say, well, this is how much I want in alimony. This is what child support should be. So how do you, how, do, how is a client supposed to know what they want? You need to have an idea, generally speaking, on all the major issues where, you, where your head is. For example, let's talk about custody. You have to have a good idea of whether or not you want the other parent to have a lot of time with the kids or a little time with the kids. You need to come into the office and understand how realistic is what, what, is, what it is that you want. You can't just come in and say, I don't want the, uh, my husband to have any time with the kids. That's not reasonable. So to know what you want, you have to know what you want reasonably speaking. That's right. And isn't it the attorney's job to help the client understand where reasonable is because there's a window that's reasonable, right? It's not a specific yeah. thing. There's a window, there's a range and it's up to your attorney to sit down with you and discuss where that is. Where's the reasonable range. But you have to listen. You have to listen and you have to take what they're giving you and put that into your, to your head where what you want and what you wish is located that's right. and apply the two things to get to something that's reasonable. Otherwise, what's going to happen is you're going to spend all your money and all your time fighting about things that you don't really want. That's right. And knowing what you want is important for you to be a smart client because if you don't know what you want, you don't want to waste months and months and months paying an attorney to litigate for you to what end? What is, what is the goal? So that's really what that means is what, know what your goal is, you know, and, and obviously you need your attorney to help you with that a little bit, but you should at some point be able to make decisions about your plan. That's what I always tell people. You need a plan. So for instance, that could be, where am I going to live? Am I going to stay in the marital home or do, can I, can I afford it? Or do I need to move out? And if I do, where am I going to go? Am I going to buy? Am I going to rent? Am I going to stay in the same town? Um, and also another issue that comes up often, um, particularly for women who have been at stay-at-home moms, what am I going to do for work? Do I have to go back to work? What can I do? And start looking around at some of those things. You don't necessarily have to tell your husband that you're doing it, but be smart and try to come up with a game plan for yourself so that you can, you know, figure out what is my life going to look like over the next few years. Well, most importantly, don't, don't just let an attorney tell you what you want. 
That's right. You, you make those decisions on your own so that you're not just being led down the wrong path towards something that your attorney thinks is fair. Yeah, you're the one that decides what's fair. Don't let your attorney decide how you should be living the rest of your life. You, you need to be involved in that decision making. So that leads us to number five. And I'm, I wish I wasn't the one that was assigned to number five because I'm not sure that there's a really nice way to say it, but don't treat your attorney like a therapist. Your attorney is not there to be a therapist. Certainly you want someone who's compassionate, but don't pay them $300 an hour or more to be your therapist. Well, therapists are a lot cheaper is what I tell everybody. They're a lot cheaper than your attorney. And they're much better than your attorney at listening to your problems. And it's something that I wish more people would keep in mind when they're going through a divorce. You, your attorney doesn't want to hear about the affair. Your attorney doesn't want to hear about, you know, the woman that your husband left you for. Those are very important issues. Save those for your friends. Save those for your therapist. Save those for people that don't cost $300 yeah. an hour. I always say just talk about it at the bar with your girlfriends over a glass of wine. It's the, that's a lot more fun than talking to us. That's for sure. Speak for yourself, John. <laughs> talking about ways to be a smarter client. We're on number six, which is make smart decisions, not emotional decisions. This is probably the most important piece of advice of the entire 10. And that's because most people, when they're going through a divorce, are overly emotional. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. Your marriage just ended. You're emotional about it for any number of reasons. Perhaps your spouse left you for somebody else. Maybe it was a really bad breakup. There was domestic violence or something else that went on. Um, people are very emotional, but you can't take that into your divorce forever. There might be a time where you're really emotional and you take a little time to get over it. But at some point, you have to start making smart decisions. Otherwise, your divorce never ends. It goes on and on and on. That's right. And we can't, we can't even emphasize enough how often we see that somebody is very emotional and perhaps they're more willing during the divorce to just spend every penny on their lawyer to help them fight the good fight in the courthouse. But then at the end of the day, they realize when the dust settles that they've just spent all of their money and they have you know, not much left for themselves. And there is some regret, you know, some buyer's remorse for that. So we'd like to emphasize to, to try to be mindful of that while it's happening. And we also like to say, treat your divorce like a business transaction. Um, you know, because that's really what it is, you know, from a legal perspective, that's really what it is. You know, every time I say that to a client, they look at me like I have three heads. I know, but you know, it's, you know, try to think about someone, you know, who's getting a divorce. We all know them, right? And you're able to have a cooler head when you're talking about someone else's divorce than you are about your own. But Christina, how many times have you heard a client You've said to a client, would you rather pay me $5,000 or just give $5,000 to your spouse? And they say, I'd rather give you $5,000. I have heard that a lot. But you know what? I think that they always regret it. I, I just think that they do because invariably they have to write me out a big check and they don't want to. But you have to write somebody a check. So, you know, keep it for yourself. You know, you may have to give the other spouse maybe a little bit more than you want to. But at the end of the day, if you're going to go home with more money in your pocket, that's more important. 
make smart decisions. That's right. All right. So number seven on the list, consult an accountant. Um, and that's really to answer the question, how much alimony do I need or Perhaps if you're going to be paying, how much can I afford to pay? You really should know when we're, you're talking about alimony or, you know, if you're talking about child support or if you're talking about whether you can afford to stay in the house or if you, you want to buy out the other person, um, just generally for your own planning, what is my financial situation? Don't, don't guess. If you are talking about alimony, particularly if you're the one who's going to be receiving alimony, Talk to your accountant, talk to some financial person who can advise you, you know, how much you make, how much you're going to be paying in taxes. So really what you're netting, what you're taking home. And that's not just looking at your pay stub because you get uh, a tax refund perhaps at the end of the year, or maybe you owe at the end of the year. So you really need an accountant to tell you, this is what you really net every year. And this is how much you really need in alimony at the end of the day to be, you know, within a certain range. And that's really important for your own planning because alimony is generally taxable and it's deductible to the person who's paying it. So don't just guess on those figures. You might have attorneys who like to guess and it might be helpful to, for them to give you a ballpark, but you really should consult with an accountant to, to tell you more specifically what the net figures are. It's very important. In fact, I had a, converse, a conversation with a client recently about this very fact that although as attorneys and we deal with these issues on a regular basis, we understand the whole concept of since alimony is tax deductible, whenever you're paying it, you can reduce the amount of taxes coming out of your paycheck. That's so right. You have a little bit more yeah. money. But people don't think like that. And they certainly don't look at it from the right perspective. And seeing an accountant who can look at, who can tell you, here's what you can do with your paychecks so that you have a little bit more, more money in your pocket. Because most people look at, at the support obligations that we tell them that they're going to need to pay. And they say, well, I only bring home $600 a week. How can I give her $300 a week and live? Well, really, because you should be bringing home $700 a week if you reduce your taxes because you're giving her $300, you're saving $100 in taxes. But no matter how many times we tell people we're not accountants and you need to go consult with an accountant, I don't think many of our clients do. I don't, I don't know how many actually do either. Um, you know, I, it's really important. It's, you should, just shouldn't guess what you're going to be taking home. Because once you sign that agreement, it's done. And you're not going to be able to come back and say, well, I miscalculated how much I'd actually be taking home. Um, so, you know, it's better to be safe than sorry. It really is. I, I think it's one of the most overlooked things that um, going back to making a smart decision and not an emotional decision, this is all part of being smart. Consult with other people that have a skill set different from your attorney that's going to help you understand what the heck you're doing. And this isn't just relevant for alimony. So if you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't pay alimony, I'm not getting alimony, it's not that important. I've had cases where um, clients there were dividing stock options, and it was really important for them to understand what the tax implications were for, for um, exercising stock options and selling stock. Um, if there's a brokerage account, um, I have an, another case now where the people are talking about liquidating a brokerage account to pay off credit card debt, and they're 
there will be tax consequences for that. So it's important for them to understand what the taxes are going to be. So there really could be a variety of um, tax implications, however small or large, that you should be aware of because you don't want it to just sneak up on you. And we do apologize. There's really no way to make this any more interesting because, quite frankly, taxes, uh, numbers, they're really not interesting and, you know, no one likes to pay alimony. But it's really important that you understand that speaking to people other than your attorney is all part of making a smart decision. And I don't mean speaking to the bartender or speaking to your friends. I mean other professionals that can really help you, which leads us to number eight, which is another professional that really you should speak to as part of the process of getting divorced, and that's a realtor. Or as um, I like to say, realtor. Realtor. Because people seem to add an extra syllable to that word. Well, you know, I'm from the South. We add all kinds of letters and syllables to all kinds of words. Um, as I get made fun of in the office on a daily basis, the way I pronounce things, I'm sure people are going to hear me say all kinds of things on this program and be like, what the heck did he just say? But contact a realtor is a great source of information. Number one, they can give you an idea. What is your house worth? Now, you can get appraisals. I just had my house refinanced. I got an appraisal on my house. I laughed out loud when I saw it. I knew it was completely wrong. It was a complete joke. Because appraisals are based on houses that have sold in the past, and they adjust the house values for how it's different from your house. A realtor is a little bit more realistic about what is your house going to sell for. Yeah, if you have an experienced realtor, they really can be very helpful. It's not as reliable as a formal appraisal, but just for your planning purposes and perhaps for reaching a settlement, they really can be very helpful to give you their insight based upon their experience selling homes and hopefully selling homes in your area, what houses are going for mm -hmm. and what is a realistic listing price. And, you know, it doesn't always sell at the list price, but what's a real realistic range, in their opinion, based upon their experience in that area that your house is going to sell for. Yeah, you're not an expert. I don't care how much you think you know about your market and your neighborhood and your house. You're not an expert. And don't rely on Zillow. I find I hear too many people saying, well, I, my, this is the value of my house because it's on Zillow. Well, let's just put it this way. Going back to my refinance I just did, Zillow had my house worth $50,000 more than the appraisal. Yeah. So Zillow's not very good, although I think it was probably more correct than the appraisal. And the, the realtor also can be very helpful in telling you what you need to do to make your house sale ready. Because you may think that you have to get a million things repaired and maybe you do, but I think the realtor can probably give you a little more objective opinion about a list of things that you really should do just to make the house sale ready. Um, that maybe you've been thinking you need to spend thousands and thousands of dollars, but maybe you really don't. Maybe you can just, you know, change the curtains and, you know, make change a rug here and there or paint or something like that just to make the house look more attractive to potential buyers. And that goes back to our point earlier about knowing what you want. So if you know you want the house sold, and you don't want to keep the house, and your spouse certainly doesn't want the house, then speaking to a realtor about what you're going to need to do to sell the house is part of helping yourself get through the process. It's part of being a smart client. It's part of making a smart decision. Those are not things your attorney should be doing. 
do you want your attorney to contact a realtor and to spend time with on the phone with the realtor finding out what needs to be in an agreement so this house can sell? Yeah, or you know, even more, you don't want your don't rely on your attorney to tell you what your house is going to sell for. They don't know. As much as they may think they know, they certainly don't. So it's really something that um, is overlooked again. But you know, our advice is that you speak to a realtor early and often in the process so that you've got a better idea what your house is going to sell for. And if you need to move out of the house, someone that can help you find another residence um, commensurate with the amount of uh, support you're going to be getting as part of your divorce. That's right. So bringing us to number nine, um, something that I think is often overlooked, pull your credit report. It's so easy to do. And that actually can help you to fill out your case information statement but it also can help you to discover any credit card debt that maybe is in your name out there that you're not aware of, um, or just generally to see if there's any old credit cards that you have that are still outstanding and um, just give you a, a good understanding and a good list um, already there for you, what credit card debt you have, what other loans you may have outstanding, and certainly you need to know your credit score. If you're going to be selling your house and maybe you want to buy a house, it's good to know what your credit score is. Or if you're going to rent, I know some places want to pull your credit report. You should absolutely know what is on there because some of those things you may need to resolve in the divorce proceeding. You may need your spouse to contribute to something that's there. And I've also had it happen numerous times where uh, a spouse sees debt that their, their husband or their wife took out in their names, their joint names, and had no idea. My favorite, my favorite, though, are still the judgments that the other spouse knows nothing about. I just love it. I don't know how someone gets a judgment and their spouse knows nothing about it, but it happens all the time. Some interesting points about credit reports is that each of the credit bureaus in the country, you're entitled to a copy of your credit report every year for free. That's so right. be sure you ask for that. And I know that there's a bunch of sites, we see them all on TV and on the radio, where you can get your credit report, uh, sometimes for free, sometimes for a small fee. It's worth every penny. You should really do it. It's actually one of the most important things that you can do early in the process so that you know what kind of debt you're even talking about. Which leads us to number 10 on our list, which is know where your valuable things are located. What does that mean? And what does that mean by valuable? Valuable means anything that if you were to sell it, it's going to net you more than, let's say, $1,000. Some, some, that's not really, that's just my definition of valuable. Also, invaluable things, things that don't have any monetary value at all but are uh, sentimental, family heirlooms, those sorts of things. Know where everything is, and if you're not in the house, if your spouse is in the house and you're not in the house, you need to make sure that whenever you have access to the house, you're taking pictures of everything so you know what's there. So that yeah, if something goes missing, you can say, here's the picture that showed you know, the vase on top of the the table, and now it's not there anymore yeah. where to go. Um, I, I often say that a divorce is sometimes like being at a, a, a birthday party where there's a pinata. You know, as soon as that pinata opens up, everybody's dashing for the floor trying to grab whatever they can. 
except in a divorce, they're all, everyone's doing it surreptitiously. So you may come home and discover that, you know, that vase is gone. Or in the case that we talked about on our first show was that crock pot that went missing. Um, you know, little things like that happen. I've had, um, a strange epidemic of watches disappearing in my practice. It's always seems to be a watch. Um, so little things like that, if you know the divorce is coming and obviously if you're the one that's seeking the divorce or you're filing and you're starting the process, you have the benefit of knowing that this is coming. But even if you don't, and it's been brought to your attention, you know, sometimes the other person hasn't really been that slick and hasn't gotten things together. And we're certainly not suggesting that you start pilfering things around the house, but if you're concerned about something disappearing, you know, take a picture of it or you, there's, there's nothing that says that you can't, you know, take some, some items that really are of particular value and put them somewhere for safekeeping. That doesn't mean steal it. It means for safekeeping, because if it is subject to equitable distribution, you're going to have to produce it at some point. Well, but if you're worried about it disappearing, you can certainly put it somewhere for safekeeping. Well, it's interesting you, you say that. That's always my advice, is that if you're scared something's going to disappear, put it somewhere for safekeeping, and we'll tell the other side where it is. That's right. Um, you know, one of the things that in certain um, cultures is that there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of jewelry and other valuable items that people acquire, particularly on the day of their marriage. And um, safe deposit boxes are used to store a lot of those items. And a popular thing that um, I've asked, particularly my male clients to do, is to go to the safe deposit box, have someone film the entire thing happening, and remove each and every item from the box. Have a video of you removing each and every item from the box and take pictures of everything. Because one thing that happens very frequently is that items leave the safe deposit box and we never know where they go. And would you believe no one has an inventory of what they put Nobody in the box? Nobody ever knows where those things went, right? It's the strangest thing. It is the strangest thing, but um, it's very important. Some other things too, though. Um, an example that's happened numerous times with me is the HELOC ch- uh, checkbook. So the home equity line of credit, if there's a checkbook associated with it, sometimes that seems to go missing. You certainly want to know where that is. You don't want to find out six months later that your spouse has been drawing down uh, from the HELOC and you didn't know anything about it. So there should always be um, some conversation about where the checkbooks are. Um, if you're going to spend anything from it, uh, a case I have recently, the husband was just going on shopping sprees, buying, you know, big screen televisions and things like that, anticipating that the wife was going to have to pay for half of it. And she didn't know anything about it until many months later. Um, also if you have all your tax records and bank statements and things of that sort, a lot of us just kind of save them and throw them in an attic somewhere. Those are going to be important documents for you, which we've talked about already. Um, you know, there's no, there's no rule that says that you can't take those out of the house and make some photocopies and then put them back. Make sure you get copies of those things. If you know that they're in the house before they mysteriously disappear. And if you see your spouse starting to take some of the, gather those documents and you never, you haven't seen tax returns in years and all of a sudden you see them around everywhere and you've had some marital, marital problems, you might start to think that 
someone's listened to our advice and is starting to gather up the documents and starting to do a little planning. I mean, part of, part of this is if you think your marriage is over, open your eyes, watch what's going on. A lot of times what happens is someone divorce plans for six months or a year, mm -hmm. they've gotten everything organized, and then they hit you with the divorce complaint, or they hit you with the fact they're going through a divorce, you're about to go through a divorce, and you're caught flat-footed. You had no idea because you didn't open your eyes and look at what was going on. And by that point, maybe there's documents missing. Maybe those things of value are no longer there. You knew they were there before, but now they're gone. And you, don't, yeah. and you never had the foresight to take pictures of things and to see what's going on. So I think part of this whole knowing where your valuable things are is also related to just keeping your eyes open to what's going on in your life, what's going on in your marriage. I'm not saying you should always be suspicious that your spouse is doing something inappropriate, but I do think many people ignore signs that it's going on, and it sometimes is really hard. There are certain things that are not replaceable, and there are certain things that aren't provable once they're gone, yeah, that they ever existed. You know, I think uh, probably every attorney that's um, practicing divorce law will tell you that if there's some dispute over an item that has suddenly gone missing, you're not going to have a trial over that. You know, like I said, with the watch, you know, one time it was a Rolex that was very valuable, and my client wanted to have a trial over the Rolex, and... There's just no way that you can prove that the other spouse took it. You may know in your heart of hearts that they did. It may be, seem obvious to everyone, but you're not going to have a trial over the missing Rolex or, you know, whatever valuable item it is. And the judge is simply not going to order that other spouse to reimburse you for half the value. I've never seen it happen. Have you ever seen an issue like that before, Never John? seen an issue like that. So I, we hope that these... Uh these 10 things we just discussed gave everyone a little um, uh, a foresight into um, how if you're going to go through a divorce to actually be a smart client and to reduce your expenses. So moving on, we're going to talk, we're going to talk about some war stories. And let's see. Ooh, ooh. Choo-choo. Okay. Well, that, that didn't exactly work out the way we intended. Technical difficulties. Um, Better luck next time. So, <laughs> so briefly, um, I want to talk about this case. Um, there we go. That's more like it. That's more like it. John, I didn't know you had a gong. <laughs> Ooh. Don't share all my secrets with the public. Um, so we have, so I had this case that went on and on for years. Uh, they were in court so many times I can't even count. But what happened at the end of the case was very uh, symbolic of someone not making a very smart decision about what they needed to do. The parties had a child, and the father had more than half the time with this child. And so technically, the, the dad was really the parent of primary yes, residence, right? Right. Um, the the uh, father was the parent of primary residence, but the parties agreed at the time of the divorce that neither one of them would be designated as the parent of primary residence because that was the only way we could settle the case. The mom refused to sign anything that said dad was the parent of primary residence, but she didn't have a problem with him having more time than her. 
So here we go down the road. So why was that important, though? Why was it important who it was, was designated? It was part of making an emotional decision as opposed to making a smart decision. She could not get over the fact that the father would be designated the parent or primary residence. She couldn't get over it. And so we could not settle the case unless the agreement specifically said neither party was designated. So it was really just the title that she didn't like. Right. So here we are years later. Child support is being reviewed by the court. The mother wanted it reviewed, and the court reviewed it. And in reviewing it, she made the argument that really they have approximately equal time. It's really not, he really doesn't have more time than she does. It's approximately equal. Even though she admits he has more time than her still, she says it's close. It's close to equal. And so she wants an increase in child support from $12 a week. She wants to go up to like $80 a week. So the judge sends everything to um, what's known as a hearing officer, which is somebody in the courthouse that just deals with child support. They're not a judge. They basically make recommendations to a judge about how child support should be calculated. The hearing officer decides that the father has 194 overnights and the mother has 171 overnights. So the father clearly has more than half. And under our law, if you have more than half the overnights with the child, you are the parent of primary residence for purposes of child support. So that just means that the PPR, the parent of primary residence, is the one that receives the child support? Is that what that means? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, just well, so our listeners well, understand. Well, no, well, that's actually not always true because in this situation, because he made so much more money than she did, he was still paying her child support even though he was the parent of primary residence. So the key here is that Everyone told her, it doesn't matter that your agreement says that neither one of you are designated the parent of primary residence. He has more time than you do, and the child goes to school based on his residence, which are, not to get too much into the weeds, but the two ways you can decide who's the parent of primary residence is whoever has 50% plus one overnight, or if the parents have exactly equal time, whichever parent the school with the child's going to school is based upon. Those are the two ways that you can uh, decide who's the parent of primary residence. So anyway, long story short, she, she lost at the trial level and then she went on an appeal where she lost again. And at the end of the day, she spent $10,000 and child support increased from $12 a week to $24 a week, all because she didn't make a smart decision. She made an emotional decision, and she decided she wanted more child support no matter what. She didn't listen to anyone along the way. And what happened? This child was out from both parents $20,000 that he could have used for college and all kinds yeah. of other things because she didn't know how to make a smart so decision. So she really added insult to injury by spending a lot and then losing. Well, it's been, a, it's been fun, Christina. It has been fun. So much fun. <laughs> well... Join us next week um, where we're going to discuss mediation, how to prepare for mediation, what to expect at mediation, hopefully give everyone some insight.